We're in the book of First Corinthians together. If you would turn there with me, please. First Corinthians, and we're in chapter one. So let's just begin our time just by reading our text for the day, and it will be verses 18 through 25 today. So let's look at that, and we'll read it together. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'd like to just give you a brief summary of verses 10 through 17, just to bring us all. I did this for myself. Uh, as I was preparing this week, I I just want to be reminded of the context that we come from, because it could be very easy, couldn't it? Just to take each section of text as a standalone text, right? But Paul just said something, and what he's doing in this next section of text is he is pressing into that in a deeper way to bring us all into an understanding of what he's saying. So what did he just say? Well, Paul He's making an appeal to the church, if we're looking uh, specifically starting at verse, about verse 10. He's making an appeal to the church that they would all agree, right? Uh, hopefully you had some time to think about that and discuss that together. He's making an appeal that they would all agree and that there would be no divisions among them, but instead that they would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And why is he asking them to do this? Because it was reported to him from someone else that there were quarrels in the church and that they were divided, right? And that because of these quarrels and their divisions, uh, Paul wanted to press into it and make sure that they understood that this type of thinking and behavior with each other was not acceptable. That's not okay that you're doing that. And for them, what was the point of division? Well, it was in these different speakers, preachers, if you will, right? And some were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And uh, in this, they were uh, making divisions among them. And really, Paul begins to tell them that the reason for these divisions is ultimately, ultimately, the reason for the divisions is not to promote another person, but it was actually about promoting yourself. It's actually about self-promotion. And it was actually because of jealousy and selfish ambition that they wanted to attach themselves to someone else that it might make them look better in the eyes of all the people around them, right? 
And so the reason they wanted to quarrel and make divisions is because they wanted to say, my group and the way we believe and the person we follow is better than the group that you follow, the person that you follow. So it was really about self-promotion. Okay, but the last statement he makes here, which is connected to all of that, which leads into our text, is in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And how did he preach the gospel? Well, not with words of eloquent wisdom, because if that were the case, and that were the point, and that was what he was doing, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. If Paul came to them, if any speaker came to them, any preacher came to them and delivered them the word of God with eloquent wisdom, right? Eloquent speech. Really, if that person were able to persuade you because of the way they speak, then the cross is emptied of its power because in that scenario, where is the power? It's in the persuasive speech of the person speaking rather than in the word of God itself. So in that way, the word of God and the cross of Christ is stripped of its power because what you're saying is the persuasive speech and the speaking ability of that person is so powerful, it can actually bring you to salvation. But that's not right, is it? And if you think that, then that is emptying the cross of its power because the thing that actually brings you unto salvation is the power of the gospel itself. It is God himself. So he begins to push farther into this beginning in verse 18, okay? So with that understanding, we come into our text for the day. Let's just look here at verses 18 and 19. He says, for, so now we know he's picking up right where he left off in his thought process, right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I'll just stop right there and say, and it was my first thought, is I expected him, I mean, really, and we might expect, that he's contrasting the folly of the message, that they, the, the, the message of the cross is preached, and the people see it as foolishness. Now, what would be the opposite of that? You would see it as wisdom. So we would almost expect him to say, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. That's not what he says. He says it's the power of God because we actually understand what's being said here. And then he, he further explains even that statement when he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, which is what he does next. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And the word thwart there means to reject, Okay to declare something invalid and then reject it. That's what God will do with the wisdom of the world. When he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, uh, I just want to remind you of, of that scenario because Paul is familiar with the context of Isaiah 29, and we could be if we can reverse in time like four years ago or whenever we were in Isaiah 29. I don't know when that was. If we can go back in time, we can remember the context of Isaiah 29, that, that's early on. That's during the Assyrian threat. And the Assyrian threat has come to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom's been wiped out by the Assyrians. And uh, soon the Assyrians will be wiped out by the Babylonians, but that hasn't come yet. And so now the Assyrian threat is on them. They have come to their doorstep, right? And God begins to speak to them about all the trouble that's coming upon them. 
This is the context that Paul quotes from, okay? It says in Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 9, Astonish yourself and be astonished. Blind yourself and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, and not with strong drink. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, he has covered your heads, and the vision of all of this has come like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it, are given it, they say, uh, read this. And he says, I can't, it's sealed. And when they're given the book to read, one says, uh, I can't read. So what he's saying is, the words of God are given to the people, and they say, I don't know what to do with that. I can't read. He says that's what it's like. It's like someone who's drunk stumbling around. But God has given them this spirit. Remember like the spirit of stupor, which he says? Their eyes have been blinded. Their ears have been closed. And so he gives them the word. And what do they do with the word? What does a blind and deaf person do with the word of God? They say, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that says. I don't know what you're saying. And this is how the people are, are uh, accepting the word of God. They're, they're just not. So the Lord says then, because this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, for fear of me is simply a commandment taught by men. Fear God. Okay, done. Check. What's next? So God says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, wonder upon wonder. And here is our quotation. The wisdom of their wise will perish and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. You who hide from the Lord and your counsel, you take de your, whose deeds are in the dark, and you say, who sees us, who knows us? Turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as clay? The thing made, say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed of him who formed it has no understanding. So here's the contrast. And the reason I brought that up and the reason I read that in its context is because Paul is saying, here in this situation that God has promised back in Isaiah 29 that he will destroy, he will bring to nothing the wisdom of the world because the wisdom of the world is blind and deaf to the true wisdom of God. That's what he's saying. So people who are blind and deaf to the true wisdom of God begin speaking things. And when they speak, being blind and deaf to the truth of God, what do they say? Things that are incoherent, like I am the potter and God is the clay. It says in the text, you turn things upside down. You say things like, God did not make me, right? Or you say of God, he has no understanding. That's exactly backwards of the situation, isn't it? But this is what Paul is saying the people are like. So there is a wisdom of the world that has no weight. It has no true understanding. It has no truth value to it. And yet they are the ones who are saying, we are the wise ones. Listen to what we have to say. And we, as the people of God, who have our eyes open and our ears open to the word of God, when that comes to us, what are we to do with that? We are to reject it because we are able to say, here is what God has said, here is what you are saying, and the two things don't line up, right? The world turns things upside down. And we need to recognize when they do turn things upside down. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that we need to be able to make judgments about things that are said and the wisdom of the world that comes to our ears? This is what Paul wanted for these people. So let's look at that again in context. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So when we give them the truth and they are people of the world and the people of the world have their eyes closed and their ears closed to the word of God, when the truth of the message of the gospel comes to them, how do they receive it? 
that's, they say it's foolishness. Why? Why do they say it's foolishness? Because they can't see it properly. That's why. But then the world gives wisdom, their wisdom, and we say to that what? Foolishness. It, we should say that. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we don't say that. Instead, we say, oh, that's a good nugget of wisdom. I will add that to all my other wisdom I've gleaned from the Bible. And we create this weird conglomeration of things. So, what is Paul saying to them? When the gospel is preached, the people end up relying on persuasive speech because they don't actually like the message, right? But they are relying on someone to speak words of wisdom with eloquent speech, and they like that. They don't actually like the truth of the message of the gospel. They like someone who can speak well. And that gets the crowd all excited. But what Paul is saying is the exact opposite. It is the reverse. We do not rely on the persuasive power of people to speak. That is not what we rely on. What do we rely on as the power of God? We rely on the word of God as the power of God, not the words of men, the eloquent speech of men, the rhetorical ability of men, the ability of someone to control the crowd and get them worked up emotionally. That is not what we rely on. What do we rely on? We rely on the word of God to impact the lives of people who God has opened their eyes, he has unstopped their ears, and God is actually speaking to you from his word. It is his word. And if he wants you to hear it, you are going to hear it. That is what we rely on. We do not rely on people to have great speaking ability. We rely on the word of God to have power. And it does have power. It has more power than, I, than we can comprehend. But we lose sight of that, and the world says, no, it doesn't. So what do you need to rely on if you don't have the word of God? You rely on the persuasive power of speech and rhetorical ability for someone to be able to work an audience and speak well, right? You have to have something. And if you don't have the word of God as your power, then you're going res- to rely on something else as your power. And that is in people who can speak really well, right? It makes sense to us. A reliance on the power of persuasion, human speech, and wisdom is a denial of the power of God in the gospel message. A reliance, I will say that again, on the persuasive power of human speech and human wisdom is a denial of the power of God in the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. You are placing the emphasis in the wrong place. I cannot save you. In fact, no one can save you. In fact, there is not a person on this planet that can speak so well as to get you so worked up and so convinced that you ought to do something. Now, it might result in some kind of action, right? How many of you went to a, some of you did, some of you didn't. You went to a a youth retreat with a church when you were young, yeah? I know a lot of you did, whether you raised your hand or not, right? You're introverted. You don't like raising your hand. So, we went to these things. I did. I went to them before I was a believer. Most of my friends were going or whatever it was, and I'd go. And you know what they were able to do really well? Is to get people really worked up and convinced of something emotionally. Not that all of those things were disingenuous. It's not that all of those things were false. But there is something in the air that gets you worked up, and you want to just follow after something. And what do we know about that from experience? 
is that that is a quick burning wick, right? It lights up. It's like sparklers, okay? All right? It lights. It's really, really bright, and then it's gone, and the flame dies. Why? Because there was no lasting power in that, truly. It was an emotional ride, and so it died out. Has that ever been true for you in your life, in your spiritual life? You have been really worked up and convinced of something because you saw somebody do something, you heard somebody say something, and it got your emotions working, and you wanted to jump on that bandwagon, and you were very, very worked up about it for a time, and then it died, and it's, where did that go? Sometimes it's simply due to sin being involved in your life. Sometimes it's because what you were persuaded to do was not actually from the word of God and the power of God. It was the power of men and persuasive speech. So we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful that we actually have a central point that we are adhering to, that we are conforming our lives to something, and it's not the emotions of another person. You see someone that's real excited and passionate about a particular thing. I bet you if they are excited and passionate enough, they will actually, in a way, start to get you excited and passionate about it. Even though it's like, I don't have, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't have any real desire for that, you know? I don't, it's not my passion, you know? Like, gardening is not my passion, you know? But if I attended a gardening retreat and everybody around me was real excited and passionate about gardening, I think all of a sudden I might, well, I don't know, I've, maybe I am passionate about gardening. And because I'm actually not, I would burn real quick, but then that would die out because that wasn't true of me. That actually wasn't true of me, okay? One question we need to ask is, is there literally power in the act of speaking the truth itself? Is there power in that? 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're obviously going to get to that in the next couple of weeks, but just listen to what it says, because this is all part of the same argument. I just need to fast forward and let you know what he says here, because this is where he's going. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because those things are spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, what are you not able to do? discern the things of the Spirit of God because you don't have the Spirit of God. So they are uninteresting to you. They are foolishness to you. So that leads us to this point that people who are devoid of the Spirit of God living in them are incapable, incapable of accepting the fullness of the truth of the gospel message. Unless God himself does a work to open their eyes, to unstop their ears, that they might hear and that they might see. If we left the book of Isaiah knowing anything, I hope that it's that, okay? That God is the one who does these things. It is God, God is the one who can help people to see. He gives them eyes to see. He gives them ears to hear. It is God who reveals his arm of salvation, right? All those things. God does that work. So when you speak the truth of the gospel, you speak the truth of God's word into someone's life who does not have the spirit of God, they are going to say of the things that you're saying, that is foolishness. And how many of you in this room can resonate with that? And it has stuck like a dagger in your heart. 
Because what you're trying to stand on, you believe it is true. I'm telling you, this is true. This is the way it really is. And you say it, and you're excited about it. And the person you're talking to, you expect is going to say, oh, yes, I agree, and that's so wonderful, isn't it? Let's all do that together. But instead they say, that's foolish. I disagree. You're wrong. That is not how it is. And it hurts, doesn't it? Because the thing that you see is your great treasure, right? It is your all. It is everything to you. It is truth itself. It is your love. It has all of your affection, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is everything to you. And then someone looks at you and says, that is the most foolish thing I have ever heard. But we have to be prepared to know that this is how the natural world understands the gospel. It is foolishness to them, and it will not be anything else unless there is an intervention of the work of God. So there is a temptation then, and that's where things are headed. There's a temptation to take the edge off of the foolishness of the gospel because we don't like that people think what we're saying is foolish. Isn't that true? What has stopped us in the past from letting people know the truth of God's word they're going to think what I have to say is foolish. And if what I have to say and what I believe is foolish, you're going to think I am foolish. And because we all have a sense of pride in us, no one wants to be foolish. So this leads us down a particular road. What does Paul have to say about that? Write th this is a really good reference. Write this down. Romans 1, 16 and 17. How did Paul understand that? When you present the gospel, the truth of God's word to someone, and they say what you're saying and what you're believing is foolish, how did, how did Paul cope with that in his world? Well, maybe I'll ask this question. Was it different in Paul's world? You're thinking, well, Paul lived back in, you know, Bible times. And if we're calling Bible times something, that's a pretty big chunk of time, okay? Uh, but we're saying, so Paul lived in a world that is very different than our world. That's true. But in a certain way, it is absolutely not true. His world was just like our world. There were people who were believers and there were people who were not believers. And that principle remains. So when Paul spoke the message of the gospel, the word of God to people, there were people that looked at him and said, what you're saying, Paul, is foolish. That is not wisdom. That is foolishness. How did Paul cope with that? How should we cope with that? Romans 1, 16 and 17, look what it says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek for everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul refused, refused to be ashamed of the gospel message. And why would you be ashamed? Why would you be ashamed? Because the unbelieving world hears it and they say, that's foolish. You should be ashamed of the foolishness that you have got yourself wrapped up in. And unless everybody in your sphere of reality is a believer, you know exactly how that feels. You know what it feels like for people to look at you and say, you have really got yourself wrapped up into something here, haven't you? You have gone off the deep end. You have become an extremist can't believe that you're choosing to live your life that way. I can't believe the decisions that you're making. 
and everything about you is, is, is offensive to them. Your very way of life is offensive to people around you because of the decisions you make, because of the truths that you believe. Everything is offensive. And so you kind of have two options here. You can either be ashamed or you can choose to be unashamed of the gospel. Do you have a choice on the matter? You should know that you have a choice. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and you can admit, I have found myself being ashamed at times? If you can genuinely at least get yourself there, that's a good step in the right direction because I really have to doubt that it's, it's been the case that there has been a person lived their entire believing life. I have never once ever had an ounce of shame in the gospel because we are fallen. We are not perfect. Uh, you agree? So is this a common struggle among us? Should we encourage each other? Should we remind each other? I don't think you're foolish. I don't think you're wrong. I want to encourage you. Hey, that decision you made and your whole family rejected you, I'm with you. I believe in you. I believe in the steps that you're taking. I think it's good. You quit that job for this reason or that reason and your, your family looked at you and said, how could you give that job up? You're crazy. But then we say, but we understand why they did that. And even though the world says foolishness to you, we are not going to be those people unless you actually did something foolish, okay? Because we do that too, don't we? We make foolish decisions too, don't we? But the foolishness is not the word of God. Sometimes it's just us, right? So let's, let's, let's maybe consider how we might encourage each other in these life decisions because sometimes we walk out these doors and it is a hard life to live with ridicule and everyone pointing the finger and saying everything you do is foolish and everything you believe is foolishness. I want to tell you that if you are following scripture, although the world says you're foolish, I don't think you're foolish. I think you were doing exactly what you were created to do. But we have to remember that the world is going to say of you and all you believe and all you stand for and all that your heart loves you're foolish. Be ready. It's coming. If it hasn't come yet, it's coming. They are going to tell you that you're foolish. Because, why? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, what is it? It is the power of God. That's the power of God. I believe that. I believe that. God is going to destroy their wisdom. In fact, Paul will say, he actually already has. And he's going to tell us what that looks like next in the text. Verse 20. So he, he begins to ask some questions. Paul's a question asker. You just got to keep that in mind. Paul always loves to ask questions. And then he answers his own questions. That's what he does. That's what he likes to do. Where is the one who is wise? Show me. Where is the scribe? Show me. Where is the debater of this age? Where are you? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, he has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Let's talk about just a few terms you found in your text there. There were three statements. That is the one who is wise, and then there's the scribe, and then the debater. You see those three different things? Those had real meaning for Paul, 
Those had real meaning for the people reading this. And the one who is wise would have been, in common terms, the Greek philosopher. Because the Greek, Greek philosophy was being referenced by many at that time. Okay, so you want to know wisdom, go back and consult the ancients, as they would say. We're talking like 6th century, 5th century BC Greek philosophers. So they would want to go back and consult the greats, right? The great philosophers of the time. And they think there is wisdom. Okay, so he, he adds another one though. With the scribe. Now we've moved from the pagan world to the religious world. And they say, well, even though we don't say go consult Greek philosophy, the Greek philosophers, maybe let's consult the Jewish people who are experts in the law. They have wisdom. And so Paul says, well, show me that scribe. Bring him here. Let's see if he truly has wisdom. And then he talks about the debater of the age. Now, the debater of the age, the sophist. You know, you ever heard someone say something like, oh, enough with that sophistry? You ever heard something like that? No? Yes? Well, Sally has, so we're, we're all good. You guys need to catch up. So, we, it, this idea, okay, uh, something, uh, how about sophisticated? Is that what you said? You, you understand the word sophisticated. It comes from a sophist. It is something that has the appearance of the eye to be something that is great, right? That's sophisticated, right? But sophistry actually has a negative connotation, and it, and it means you have the appearance of something great, but underneath that, we know it's not so great, okay? That's so, so you can add that. Inter work that into your vocabulary, the way that you speak, okay? So there, that's sophistry. But it comes from a Greek word, sophia, which is wisdom. That's where that comes from, okay? Sophia is kind of a popular kid name these days. It means wisdom in Greek. So sophistry, there were, there were those called sophists, and they had three hubs at that time. But maybe just let me tell you a little bit about sophists, because a lot of what Paul is about to say here in the next couple of chapters is directly related to countering this sophistry movement that was happening at that time in history. You had the ancient Greek philosophers around the 6th and 5th century B.C., and then all of a sudden there was something else that happened in the 1st and 2nd century A.D., so that's removed by seven or 800 years, okay? And why did all this happen? Well, if you remember, when we talked about the founding of the city of Corinth, it was an old, old, old city. But then when the Roman world took over in 146 B.C., it became, a Ro it became Romanized, right? Rome came in and said, we are now going to take over this old Greek city, Corinth, and it's now going to become Roman. Well, they not only did that with Corinth, they did that with all these other cities too. That was the way they worked. It was the game of risk in real life. That's what they were doing. They were taking over everything. And so as they did, they made everything more Roman. Well, then they moved Roman people in. This, this is all going somewhere. Just hang with me. Okay, and then all these Roman people move in and, uh, because they want to Romanize the place. So you, you do that by taking Roman citizens who know the Roman way of life and you plant them in Greek cities to make it more Roman. Well, as they lived in these Greek cities, they started to encounter all, these, all this Greek philosophy and they said, well, this is, this is kind of neat. This is pretty cool. And so there are, all of a sudden, there was like this popular affinity for old Greek culture and philosophy. 
And so what you have happen in the first and second centuries AD is a revitalization of the sophistry movement that happened back in the sixth and fifth centuries BC. Okay, you following me? And so when all this revitalization of sophistry happened, you had it happening in different parts of the Roman world. And so I, I bring our map back up for display. Corinth is right there where the star is. Just remember that. There were, there were really three main hubs of philosophy, of sophistry at the time. And that was in Rome and in Athens and in Ephesus. Now, just think with me for a second. If you wanted to get from Ephesus to Rome, what city would you have to go through? Corinth. Remember, Corinth was the port. Corinth was where all the ships traveled. They had to pass through Corinth, all right, because that little tiny land, they learned that they could save a lot of time and a lot of money if they went through here, right next between Athens and Corinth, and then they would travel over to Rome. People from Rome who wanted to go to Athens, where would they land? In Corinth. You understand what's happening here? It's almost like Corinth becomes this epicenter of not only culture, but also of Greek philosophy. So if he's writing a letter to a church in Corinth that is the epicenter of Greek philosophy and culture that is mixing with Roman culture, and he all of a sudden starts to talk about these sophists in the area, and they're, they're bent on being uh, eloquent with their words, he has a big warning for them, okay? And his warning is that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who believe it is the power of God. So then he begins to say, where is that one who is wise, who the world right now thinks is wise? Where is the scribe, if you think it's religious in nature? Where is that debater of this age? So he's putting down what is very, very, very popular in their day. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So there's the big contrast. The foolishness of the wisdom of the world is made foolish by God, but the foolish people of the world are making God's wisdom foolish. So it's an absolute reversal. So when things are turned upside down, which is what it says in Isaiah, this is exactly what was happening. So I think that maybe that's why Paul quoted that passage from Isaiah, because the world is turning things upside down. The foolish people are saying God is foolish, but then God is saying to the foolish people, no, 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 you're the ones who are foolish. You see, when a world becomes so bent on thinking that they are so great and so wise and so powerful, that when the message of the cross comes in, they say, that has nothing on our advancement, right? We have advanced so much as a human race. What we have is wisdom. What we have is knowledge. What we have is power. And so all that you're saying of this ancient culture and this ancient book that you love so much, foolishness. Foolishness, all of it. I hope that kind of gets you in that mindset. I hope because so much of of what we're doing here is actually found in the text. You know, it has been said to me, and not only recently, but also throughout my entire career in ministry, people would say something like this to me. They do all the time, actually. It's like, you're, you're more of a teacher than a preacher, aren't you? You're like, a, you're like a teacher, not a preacher. Well, I've thought about that over the years, because many people have said that. And uh, it's a fundamental conviction, actually. 
that if we can understand the word of God, that there is actually power in the word of God, and it is not in the power of my persuasive speech. I want us all to know the word of God. And how do we know the word of God? By understanding what it says. And how do we understand what it says? By understanding the context. By understanding the words. By understanding the people. And I think that the more we press into understanding the word, the more the word becomes clear. And now we have the clarity of the word. And we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit of the word. And now we understand what we're supposed to do with this thing because now we understand it. And I would much rather spend my time giving you the thing that actually has power than trying to persuade you with emotionalism. I want to give you the word of God, and I want you to understand it. I want to understand it myself because I believe that there is power in the word of God to transform lives, and I believe that we can very easily become a people, however, who want to get wrapped up in emotionalism because that feels better. It feels better. You actually gave me something to think about. You got me all riled up, and I like getting riled up. Actually, I get very riled up. You know that about me. I get very riled up in the word of God because I believe that the word of God has power. And that's what I want you to have. I don't want you to have my emotions. I want you to have the word. That's what I want you to have. There is power in the word of God. It will change your life. And I pray for you. The elders pray for you that the Lord would continue to open your eyes more and more to what God has said, that you might see it that you might hear it and that your life might be changed by it. We need the word. There is power in the word of God. And this is the very thing that actually Paul is addressing is that even the scribes would give them the word, right? So that's interesting. But obviously what they were doing is they were really giving them the word and saying, but here are all our traditional understandings of that thing. And so what is actually being preached is traditions, we know that. That's what Jesus confronted, right? That's why he was so upset with them. Teaching the fear of God is a commandment of men, right? This is not okay. So we give the word of God and we trust and we rely on the power of the word of God to actually change us. And I know for a fact that many of you have experienced that. I've experienced it myself. There is power in the word of God to transform lives. Do you agree? If you don't believe that, then you're going to find all that we do here very uncomfortable. Weird. And if I might say foolish. Because we genuinely believe that the word of God has power. And it can change your life. And there are many approaches to do this, right? We take a particular approach walking through whole books of the Bible. Not everybody does it that way. That's okay. But we should be focused on the word. Right? We should be focused on the word. How does that play out in this situation? Because they were relying on people rather than the word and message of Jesus Christ, the word of God himself. They were relying on people and not the word. And as they relied on people and not the word, what did this do to the word? It robbed it of its power. It robbed God of his power. Right? All this makes sense, what I'm saying? Just like Corinth, we find ourselves in kind of a uh, cultural collision. Would you agree? <laughs> we, uh, many things have collided here in the United States. And uh, I wanted to spend just a moment um, talking about something in particular. And uh, 
I just came off of saying that what we need most is the word of God. And that is true as our regular diet, that is what we need. Wouldn't you agree? It's our regular diet, this is what we need is the word of God. Um, but we also need to be able to take the word of God and, and allow it to confront real things happening in real time right in front of our face so that when we leave here and when we're not in this kind of bubble, that we're able to properly confront the things that, are, that present themselves to us, that we might better be able to say, that's foolish, that is not foolish, right? That's, that's what uh, is said in scripture about having your powers of discernment constantly trained, right? That's what it is, distinguishing between good and evil. Are we doing that on a regular basis? There is a big overarching thing that, in my mind, is one of the greatest things that we need to be aware of, okay? And this is not unique to me. Uh, this is very popular, but I would really like to share this with you as we're considering these things together, okay? And that thing that I think we need to be very, very aware of is what has had a term attached to it, and that is expressive individualism and the new perception of, of the uh, modern self. And someone who has written extensively on this is Carl Truman, if any of you are familiar with Carl Truman. Um, but here's a quote from Carl Truman. He says, in the world of expressive individualism, the truth of emotions is found not in their conformity to God's revelation, but in the sincerity of their expression. If we're looking at what's being said here, he's saying that we live in a world of expressive individualism where the new self, there is a modern self. And this modern self that is surrounding all of us in a pressing way is doing something. And the thing that they're doing is saying that sincerity of expression is the greatest good sincerity of expression is the greatest good. That is not true. You know that, right? But do we know all the ways that that plays out? That plays out in a lot of ways. So how did we get there? I want to summarize for you just in three points uh, what is ultimately not mine, but it, the summary is my own, okay? Okay. Um, here is, how, here is how Carl Truman would, would summarize this whole situation. It first began under psychological terms. That is, there was an old world where things were more objective. And in this objective world, uh, he brings up an illustration saying, um, my grandfather, for example. If I asked my grandfather, does your work make you happy? Does your job make you happy? He said, my grandfather would not really understand that question because it was more of an objective world where his job was meant to provide for his family and his job did provide for his family. So in that way, I suppose, yes, it made me happy. But my job is to provide for my family. Why are we talking about did it make me happy? There's a big mindset difference, isn't there? A lot of you are laughing at that because you're like, yeah, I mean, I, thought, like, I, I understand that world, that mindset. What he's saying is that over time, over the last couple of hundred years, there has been a change in the way that we view things in psychological terms. And no longer is the world fixed, objective, but instead the world is more subjective. That is, I don't just operate here in my world, but in the world around me. I, I have to operate in the world around me. It's more so 
I now have choices, right? My sense of self is less about what's around me and more about the choices that I make. That's kind of what it's about. I get a choice of who I am. I get a choice of what I do. I get a choice of where I live. And this creates what's called an inner space, right? What do I want to do? What makes me happy? You get this, these ideas? Like, what do I want to do with my life? What's going to make me happiest in my life? It's a very different world than here's the world I was born into. Now, what must I do with my life to operate according to what the world expects of me? Very different situation. So over time, there are a change in psychological terms. And really, the result of this, of this is a question. How are we to best understand ourselves in psychological terms? So if it becomes about me, how am I best to understand me, right? How do I know what I most like? How do I know the job that will make me the most happy? So you start to think inside yourself, right? You get, you get where this is going? So where does that bring us to? Well, it, it, began, uh, it, it begins to unfold in sexual terms. Because if you know anything about like Sigmund Freud and that whole movement, where does he say your greatest desires come from? Your choices, actually the being of who you are, all is a derivative of what? Your sexual desire. This is what he said. This is what became commonplace in the mindset of people psychologically. So now there's a private significance that occurs. So the nature of my sexual desire actually defines who I am. That's how it works. That's where it all goes. Everything I desire is an outworking in some way of sexual desire. That's the mindset. And this is something that you have to come to terms with privately. So we understand this trajectory. If everything is about the greatest choices that are going to make me the most happy, then I, under, then I need to understand who I am. And if who I am is simply understanding my sexuality, then what do I need to do? Understand my sexuality. Because it's not fixed. Right? The world is subjective. I get to decide what makes me most happy. I get to decide who I truly am, and then the greatest good is to genuinely express that, right? So where does that lead next? It leads into political terms, making it public. And why might that be? It must become public because they say, that I am a legitimate person because this is truly what I believe, this is truly who I have decided who I am. I have come to terms with who I am. But you say who I am is not okay. So I need to make my voice public that you might think it is okay. Because who are you to tell me that what I am is not okay if I have said that I am okay? Because life is all about me. What I am. Who I have decided I am. What makes me most happy. And the greatest good I could ever do in this life is to genuinely express who I am and what makes me happy. And who are you to say that that shouldn't make me happy? Right? So well, so much of it has to do with sexuality, doesn't it? So are we wondering why there is a sexual revolution? It came from somewhere. It came from somewhere. Okay? You can actually follow that trajectory to why things are the mess that they are at least in some way. Why do we need to talk about this? I, I'll summarize it in this way. I put this on the screen. The greatest danger in these cultural ideals of subjectivity and inclusion, why must we be inclusive, by the way, 
because who are we to say that what someone has thought is wrong? So we can't say that anybody is wrong about anything if that's the way they've decided to genuinely feel and believe. So they become the central point of conformity rather than the word of God, and that's my whole point, and that's why I'm taking you down that path. It's because there are two points of conformity in our world at large. You are conforming yourself to something. You are growing. You are advancing. You are trying to become, right? What are you trying to become? The happiest version of yourself? The most content version of yourself? The richest version of yourself? How do we decide what we are becoming? I think it can be very easy because the world at large says, listen, you just think what you think is best. You just do what you think is best. You follow your own heart. You follow your own desires. You do what makes you happy. All, all these statements, you know these statements, right? All those statements are wrong. That's not true. Don't follow those desires. You know what your deepest rooted desires are? Sinful. Don't go after those. Don't be who you want to be. Be who God has said you should be. There's two different points of conformity. You're either conforming to this inner space that you have created and you want to become whatever it is that you want to become and you're working to become that and it's all about you in that space or you're conforming your life to an external standard. God has said who I should be. God has said how I should live. God has determined my sexuality. God has determined all these things about myself and even though I feel differently, I need to change how I feel, and I need to pursue what God has said absolutely. Now, that, that boils down to a lot of things. Because you're thinking, oh, yeah, that is how bad the world out there is. I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. We are all conforming to some standard. What is the standard that you are conforming to? What is the greatest good in your mind? I'm really asking that. I mean, think about it. What are you conforming your life to? American ideals? Are you trying to just do what everybody else is doing? Everybody else is saying, you be you, just do your thing, live your life, just be happy. What, there are a lot of things that we could say that are common phrases about living life, Right? That is not what we believe. But our emotions are broken. Our desires are broken. And so they must be brought into conformity to the truth. So should you act on everything you feel? Does the world at large say act on what you feel? Do you see the distinction? You feel as though you are different than what the word of God says so you look at the Word of God and you say that the Word of God says something different, you have a choice to make, don't you? You either conform your life to what God has said in His Word or you conform your life to your personal desires. That's two options. So if we are to bring our lives into conformity to the Word of God, what must we focus most of our attention on? What the Word of God has said. How do you know how to bring your life into conformity to the word of God if you don't know it? Right? 
Does the word of God take your priority? Do you want, what is your motivation for knowing the word of God? Do you believe there's power in there? Do you believe there's truth in there? Or do you think there's foolishness to be found there? Antiquated words and thoughts. So why even go there? Right? Why even gather as the church? Unless you know why. Right? So, we focus our attention on the word. We don't believe there's power in this other wisdom of the world. We don't believe that there's wisdom there. We believe there is wisdom here. And we believe that there is power here. And we believe that we must conform our lives to this standard. We all have a standard, right? Standard is set for us in the word of God. And so we conform our lives to the standard that is the word of God. All that come through okay? A lot to be said about that. A little bit divergent path there for a moment, but I think it's important because you are colliding and I am colliding on a daily basis with a completely different mindset about the world. And how are we to determine? Paul was making, aware to, uh, making these people aware that those sophists that are on the rise in your area, remember how close they were to Athens, by the way? He was saying to them, be aware of their wisdom. Be aware of their persuasive speech. So he was making them aware of something that was real in their day. Can we not do the same? Become aware of the dangers of our day and say, that is not wisdom. But I know where wisdom is and I know where true power is found and it is here. So he says, God and his wisdom He determined something. He determined that the world would not come to know him through wisdom. Do you think in all your search and all your quest for wisdom that you're going to find God there? By growing in wisdom and knowledge and whatever else you can do, you're not going to find God there. But you will find it in the preaching of the word. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? The folly of what we preach. It is folly. It is foolishness to the world. That's how they see it. I hope we don't see it as foolishness. If we do, then something has changed and we've started to think the way of the world. So we will not abandon the scriptures. And we will not say certain sections are okay and other sections not okay. Or include other religious works into this one, right? They are not all the same. We do not have an inclusive mentality that all is the same and all desires are okay and acceptable. That goes into a lot of things. You're probably thinking in terms of sexuality because that's what we were talking about. That, that, goes, that goes far, right? That goes into a lot of things. But we're not going to do that. So God has chosen to save people, to bring them to a wisdom of God through the folly of preaching. And he chose to use people to do it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? God chose. Could God, just that's an amazing thought. Could God choose to just transport from heaven all the contents of the word of God into your brain in a, in a moment. Could he speak from heaven? Could he, while you're laying in bed, write it up on your ceiling if he wanted to? Could he make it float? Could he make a hand appear and writing appear, right? Can, can God do that? He can do all of that and listen to how he chose to communicate his, through preaching, through people. But he says, remember that the people is not the power. The power is not found in the people, the messenger. 
The power is found in the message itself. But we as fallen people can get that confused sometimes, can't we? It's not the power of the person, it's the power of the message, right? So Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but that's not what we give them, right? We preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That's how they view it, but to those who are called, both from the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. God in the flesh put to death? That does sound foolish, but that is the truth of the matter, isn't it? This is what God has done for us. And while the world may demand other things of us, while the world may demand that we begin to think like them because we are advanced like them, because we have evolved like them, we need to think with this new mentality to truly come to terms with how far the world has gone, right? We need to get with it, get with the times. Start thinking better, think in a more modern sense. We've come beyond all that antiquated stuff. That's not true. There is wisdom in the word of God. And it is true. It is objectively true. So, what do we do with this? Let me try to wrap up here. We do not compromise the objective nature of the word of God as the central point of conformity for all mankind. We do not compromise on that. I think there is a temptation to compromise on that. It's like, well, that's the nature of postmodern truth, isn't it? If you're familiar with that idea, what postmodern truth is we live in an age where there is no objective truth. It's always true for everybody. But instead, everybody kind of creates their own truth standard. If it's true for you, then it's true, right? But that's not, that's not accurate. That can't, that can't be true, right? Either God is real or he is not real, right? Either the Bible is the word of God or it is not the word of God. It can't be both. It's not the word of God to me. It is the word of God, Right? And it is true for me, and whether you want to accept it or not, it's also true for you. It is objectively true. There is an objective standard given in the Word of God that we must then look at, understand, and then conform our lives to what God has said. That's what we are to do. And so the Word of God takes priority, it takes our emphasis, it takes our heart, it takes our minds being engaged, it takes encouraging each other to say, you're not crazy, you're not foolish, we're all following after the Word of God together, let's all be in this together, and in the midst of that, not divide and quarrel over ridiculous things that we shouldn't divide and quarrel about. Isn't that what he said last week? Well, it wasn't last week to him, but isn't that what we talked about last week? Right? This is our goal. So we are a people who are prone to think what we want to think, but what we're learning, what we're seeing is we need to conform our thinking to what God has said and what God thinks. And if we can all be thinking how God thinks, then we will all be thinking the same thing. And if we're all thinking the same thing, what are we doing? We're saying the same thing, which is what he said when he said, you all need to agree. You all need to say the same thing. You all need to be in agreement about these things so that you're not dividing and quarreling. And we all know church. Churches love to divide and quarrel. But if our focus was on the word rather than desires or other concepts that has nothing to do with our conforming ourselves to the word of God, then we're going to get real wrapped up in things that we like, things that we don't like, and uh, we start to divide over these types of things, right? That ultimately has at its root jealousy. That'll make sense? So 
there's a little snippet, both of my personal philosophy on preaching, right, and on what Paul was telling these people. They kind of just work together. So if you are new to us, let me just say this. Or if you're not new to us, old to us, I suppose, would be the opposite. If you are not new or if you are new, we emphasize here the truth of the word of God in a way that's probably not flashy to your eyes, okay? I'm not the best speaker in the world. You don't have to tell me or say it in quiet or like, this, is, this guy isn't great, is he? But it's, like, it, it's okay that I'm not the greatest speaker in the world. That's not my goal. My goal is not to be a great speaker and demand a crowd, you know? It, that's not my goal. I'm, I'm not trying to be a great speaker entertainer. So if you're saying I'm not that, then okay, I agree with you. So I don't know what to tell you. I, uh, uh, we all agree on that. But my, my goal is, is to give you the word of God, but then also to give you the word of God in such a way that I hope that I'm able to draw a connection for you from what God has said and bringing us into that world so that we might understand it in a more clear way that we might more appropriately be able to conform our lives to what God has said. That's the goal, conformity to Christ, growing in maturity in Christ, understanding the gospel message. That is the goal. And should that be reached, it's going to have so many outworkings, right? You're not going to be able to contain it. Your life is now on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more you understand it, the more your life radiates the gospel in every way. So we, we must start where the power is, and we must hold on tightly to it. So we sing the word of God. We pray the word of God. We teach the word of God. We rally around the word of God. Why is it all so focused on understanding the word? Because that's what we need. Right? That's what we need. I'm telling you, even though the world does not tell you this, what you need most in this life is not a vacation or more money or a new job or for things to just go well today or to get some sleep or to whatever your ailment is telling you that's not the goal. It's not what you need. What you need is the word of God in your life. Because there is refreshing for your soul to be found there. And there is power there. I promise you. That's where it is. Food for the soul. So seek out the word. I want to encourage you to do that today. Have a passion for it. Understand it more. All right, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, so I'm going to hand things over to Jimmy, okay? Let's all pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that it is. Thank you for transforming our lives to it. Help us all to be focused on the word of God that is your word, and that we might, by the power of your spirit, be living our lives in such a way to bring us all in conformity to what your word has said. Help us. We need help. We need help even in our minds. We need help to pay attention. We need help to be focused. We need help to be passionate. We need help to be humble. We need help to do all of these things, to love, to proclaim the gospel to the world. We need help because if we don't have help, we are going to live the way of the world and call all of this stuff foolishness. But we know because you have transformed our hearts, because you have given us new minds, because you have opened our eyes to see, because you have opened our ears to hear, we cannot. Where else can we go? You have the words of life. This is it. 
So help us to see it constantly and have it on our minds and on our hearts. And in the midst of that pursuit, Lord, give us unity by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.